Hello, listeners. This is Historical AF, or if you cuss like we do, Historical as Fuck. This is your delightful historian, Kina. And I am a guest host, Natalie, extraordinarily and amazingly. I am also a librarian, so full of knowledge over here. We're here to deliver the funny, morbid, spooky, weird, and random historical nuggets you never knew you needed. Welcome to episode four. As you can tell, our co-host Ashley is not here. Um, Ashley has been very upfront about how important her health and her mental health is, and she's doing everything she can to feel better. So she needed this time to do what she needed to do to be healthy and happy. And so we have our wonderful guest host librarian who is going to hang out with me today. Yep. Hello, hello. Yeah, Keena yeah. and I, we have been great friends for such a long time. So it's really great to be here. Common denominator here is that we all worked at the same librarian. Or yes. librarian. We all worked at the same library at the same, no, not at the same time. Ashley didn't work with you, did she? Mm-mm. Uh, you were one of the new people after she left. Yes. But I got all the awesome stories about her, though, from you. I know. <laughs> She's infamous. She was still invited to, like, all the company programs. <laughs> Even after she left. But yeah, I think I've known Ashley eight years, and I've known you six. Yes. What? So I know we're all old, old, but it's okay. <laughs> that's it's why so we drink. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's why we drink. Take a shot. Do. If you're listening, take a shot. <laughs> so our theme this week is food, and I'm <laughs> so excited because I love food. Yes, this is like the perfect week to have me on, I would admit, like for food. <laughs> So this week will be a little bit different. Because Ashley wasn't here, I went ahead and prepared all of the stories. But Natalie, with like less than a day's notice, actually came up with stories too. So we're going to have extra bonus stories for you this week. And it's going to be awesome. Just extra more fun for you. <laughs> like, I mean, real talk. There are so many fun historical like nuggets about food. I couldn't decide. There's just too many. Oh. I stayed on Google for a long time like just surfing so much <laughs> yeah. I, I can be a connoisseur now of food history <laughs> there were like three of my stories that i knew automatically because i already have like researched them so i was like yeah. yes so <laughs> i'm excited and i feel like one of mine will be my uh redemption for trying to pronounce russian last week so i can actually pronounce ancient mesoamerican words which you would think that would be the hard one but i can actually pronounce those i think words are just hard <laughs> in, in general sure english is hard <laughs> like every everything's hard <laughs> math eng- english just everything <laughs> except food i can eat e- eating is fine <laughs> and yeah i do love food uh, do you want to tell me more about you well about myself um so my name is natalie and i am a librarian i also do graphic design and art and sculpture, so art of every medium possible. I just love to experiment. I do love history. I'm not a huge history buff. I won't be like, that's not right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I I do really enjoy it, and I like to research and everything. So I'm very excited to be here and very excited about the topic. Well, as librarians, we are like queens of research, so this is just perfect. Yep. And we cite our sources, so... (laughs) Somebody asked me on something like, how do you research? I'm like, well, I'll find a topic. And then I make sure it comes from scholarly sources. And they're like, you were the biggest damn nerd ever. And I'm like, I'm not going to go on a podcast and be spitting lies and then get all those angry emails. I'm going to cite 
Mm-mm. Go to that J store. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually both worked in the children's department. Oh, we got some stories to tell. I'll tell you. People think libraries are like, oh, it's so quiet, and I bet you get to read all day, or you just shush people all day. And it's like, no, we're like calling the police and, you know, mm-hmm. cleaning up bodily fluids that nobody should ever have to clean up. And Yeah. I know every time I say, so you work in a library, does that mean you can you just shelve? <laughs> no. Or I would say I'm like, I'm a children's programmer. Do you work with computers? No. <laughs> So now I have to say, like, I'm a children's event planner. And instead of programmer, I always say event planner. Yeah. But but it was fun, though. Like, when we did our programming and stuff, I mean, robotics, video games, playing with Legos, and all the nerdy shit. And it just is great. <laughs> I became a bigger nerd as I worked at the library. Well, it gives you more opportunities to let the inner nerd just fly. Like, oh, man. Well, it flew. It flew. It flew hard. <laughs> This is like a PSA for why libraries are awesome, but they are. But like part of the reason I decided to go forward with like my historian career was because all the programs I did with teens ended up being like history programs, mm-hmm. <laughs> like trying to find the most creative ways that I could slip in history lessons. And the number one I thing I would do is like haunted history because you can't really hear about hauntings without having to hear about the history first. So I would trick them into learning about historical landmarks. <laughs> Or like catacombs or churches made out of bones. Anything creepy. They were like, yes. And they learned. Oh, yeah. Like the catacombs. That's some serious shit over there. Oh, those are creepy. I was in the catacombs in Paris once. And the girl that was with me, shout out to Amberly. <laughs> Your eyeballs were like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were down in the catacombs, which in Paris, you just go down this like spiral staircase and you just keep going and going and going. It feels like miles. And then when you're down there, you're by yourself. There's no employees, nothing. They're just like, just follow the, you know, directions. Don't hop any kind of fence or whatever, because you will die. And I was like, whoa, that's that's big twist and turn. Like, follow the directions or you will die. But we were down there and I was like, oh, man, if something was haunted, I bet it was here. And the second I said that, she fell and she caught herself on a skull. And she was like, you bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, did you get pushed? She's like, I hate you. But yeah, it was really funny. Okay. <laughs> uh, good times. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I know. But speaking of France, that's where my first story. Oh, that's is. awesome. Did was not aware of that. And then just, boom, there we go. <laughs> it was a happy accident. So uh, let's do this. do the siege that gave birth to the croissant. <laughs> it's a croissant. <laughs> so real talk, I was gluten-free for 10 years and the whole time I was gluten-free, there was five things that I dreamed about eating. So the first one was a donut because gluten-free donuts suck. I'm sorry, they just do because the thing that makes donuts tasty is the gluten. And then number two was like a hot yeasty roll, you know, like the big giant ones at restaurants. And mm-hmm. number three was a croissant. And then there was also like Oreos and Little Debbies. And then uh, this year I found out that I do not have celiac disease. I actually have lupus. And I think I'm the only person in history to be excited that they have lupus because I ate all those things in like a day. Bucket <laughs> 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 <Like it> list. <laughs> it was. I was like, I could eat everything. So, yeah, I was a little detour right there. So are you ready for me to blow your mind? Um, always. Yes. Croissants are not French. 
Oh, but they sound so Frenchy. Croissant. Okay, so the croissant was actually baked in Austria first, and its shape is anything but an accident. The delicious pastry that I wish I was eating right now. <laughs> the more I talk about it, I'm like, I should have bought croissants for this. Anyway, it dates back to 1683. In that year, an army of more than 100,000 Ottoman Turks besieged the city of Vienna, and they surrounded it for months. The residents barricaded inside its walled city probably wondered each day whether or not that would be their last. That's a little dark, but it gets better because we're talking about pastries. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be sad with with a pastry. Like, yeah. Like, it's even shaped in a smiley face. It's true. It's going to have an happy ending because we can eat croissants now. (laughs) Which was one of my favorite things to eat when I was in Paris. Because it was the first time I uh, ever had Nutella. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mind blown. It was so good. (laughs) (laughs) Nutella on a croissant? Oh, my God. I was just too much. Sensory overload. (laughs) So the Turks actually tried to tunnel underneath this wall. But the bakers who were working all night long heard the digging sounds and raised an alarm. So this early warning prevented the Turks from breaching Vienna's walls and actually helped save the city. They saved the city. They did. The bakers. Awesome. Pastries are important. I have to admit, I just pictured in my head croissant ninja stars. (laughs) 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 Or like croissant boomerangs. (laughs) With their little hats out there being ninjas. And just like, like, you know, doing um, cartwheels and... (laughs) Like very uh, Tom Cruise, <laughs> Mission Impossible meets ninjas, and slinging out those croissants and everything. <laughs> I am visualizing it now, and it is amazing. <laughs> <sighs> so eventually, an army under Polish king King John the Third reached Vienna, and he drove the Turks away. So the bakers, who are the big damn heroes of the story, celebrated the end of the siege by doing what they do best: baking. They copied the crescent moon design from their enemy's flag, and they turn it into a commemorative pastry. So that's like the biggest fuck you. Like, I'm going to take your flag, and I'm going to turn it into a pastry, and we're going to eat the shit out of it. <laughs> so it was originally called a Kipfel, which is German for cres- or crescent. Okay. Yeah. German word for crescent. And it was honored during the victory parades and stuff. And it also was kind of like a hint they wouldn't have survived without the bakers, because... They would have tunneled. Again, ultimate fuck you pastry. Woo! I know because you're eating it and you're shitting it out. Like, <laughs> I didn't think about that, but yeah, that's like the ultimate. Like It's like a double whammy on that one. <laughs> it is. So Kipfels, which I did not look. That was the only word I didn't look up. Oh, damn it, Kina. Okay. So <laughs> Kipfels turned into croissants in 1779 when 15-year-old Austrian princess Marie Antoinette arrived in France to marry the future king, King Louis XVI. Parisian bakers started making the Kipfels in her honor, but the French found themselves in love with the treat. I mean, same. And they made it their own. So, that is how croissants are known as French. But I also have a historical detour here. The Siege of Vienna is also believed to be the birthplace of the bagel. I love bagels. God. So King John, <laughs> so King John of Poland that we talked about earlier, he was a widely known skilled horseman, and supposedly a baker created a like roll in the shape of a stirrup to honor him. And the Austrian word for stirrup is bugle. 
So eventually Americanized became bagel. What? Well, now I'm thinking bugles like the chips. <laughs> <laughs> Little things on your fingers. <laughs> I know. Like they just, oh my gosh, that would be creepy. Okay, so imagine we have our croissant ninjas and then like creepy uh, bugle fingers just like just coming out of nowhere. <laughs> It's true. So that and then a bagel. <laughs> a bagel. So the siege of Austria changed breakfast noms forever. Who would have thunk? I guess good things can come from wars and <laughs> fighting. Yeah, next time somebody's like, "Make love, not war." Wars make croissants. <laughs> Crescent pastries. <laughs> oh man, that's one of my favorite stories. That's actually one of the ones I knew beforehand, and I just think it's hilarious. And it's about it croissants. Is. And I love them. Yeah, it's all good things. I mean, I hate it for anyone who died in the siege, of course. Like, it's, it's terrible to fight, but this is an interesting way to come about it. That's true. That's true. So, speaking of breakfast, I hear you have a breakfast story. Yes. All right. Waffles. All right, let's get, let's get real. Let's get this shit serious <laughs> right now. Fucking waffles. I love waffles. Which I... Uh, I did research this morning. Uh, a friend in my, of mine and I, we went to Waffle House for breakfast. <laughs> Get your inspiration at the Waffle House. Well, I think I was listening to your podcast or, or talking to you, like, you mentioned waffles, and I'm like, where did they come from? And uh, <laughs> and then I, I mentioned, I, like, well, I was doing research on waffles, and Emery's like, do you want to go to Waffle House? I'm like, yes, I do. So we went to Waffle House this morning. <laughs> it was delicious. Uh, so do you know where waffles came from do you have any idea i actually have no idea a lot of people think belgium but i mean because we have belgium waffles but actually started in ancient greece what Uh, i would not have guessed that granted they they aren't like the waffles we think today they're more like wafers and probably closer to pancakes but that's where it really originated was like during the iron age and um, ancient greece would have two pans on hinges and long sticks. And so they put their batter in between the pans and stick in the fire. And they'd have those long handles to pull them out. They're called, I have no idea how to pronounce this, not going to lie. It's like <laughs> Oblios. It's O-B-L-E-I-O-S. That sounds good to me. There's a lot of vowels. So I don't <laughs> do vowels. My country accent does vowels, but I do not. <laughs> um, Anyways, but as, of course, population grew and the cities grew and they got really popular, they actually had vending carts and would sell them on the street. So it's sort of like your first pretzel stand that I would think in New York. They would sell these these hotcakes that were going like hotcakes. Um, <laughs> See what you did there. <laughs> uh, thank you. Wink. <laughs> so as time moved on and, of course, Roman Empire taking over conquering bastards. I do love Rome, though. As they expanded, and of course, that increased merchants and trade, apparently other people liked these wafers. So they changed the name to wafers then, and went through Middle East, and eventually made up to Europe. Catholics love these, because during Lent, it, did, it doesn't have any animal products. I mean, it does, yes, of course, have egg and milk, but to them, that's nothing. They could eat that, you know, versus any other meat. So they loved that, and then eventually it made up to the Dutch, which is where we kind of now have our waffle. They didn't have, I couldn't find a name for who instigated the honeycomb design, but 
Anyways, they tinkered with it and eventually came up with the honeycomb design that we know now as waffles. And honeycomb in Dutch is waffle. What? Oh, man, yeah. that just made like a full circle right there. Yeah, it's, and they spell it different. It's W-A-F-E-L, and that means honeycomb in Dutch. So that's how we got waffles. That's how we have the name. No idea. Yeah. In the 1700s, that's, of course, when our great country here in the U.S., where, you know, at least semi-great, <laughs> depending <laughs> on the day. And <laughs> Thomas Jefferson loved them. He actually had a French iron skillet. Eventually, when in the 1800s, when we had wood stoves, they finally made a version that was a stovetop. So they shortened the handle where it was probably like two, three feet long, where they just stick it in the fire. They shortened it to where it was only maybe a foot. So it could just look more like a regular pan. Cool. Can you hear me pouring my drink? Sorry. I know. Yeah. I hear, I hear your little snap crackling and popping over there. <laughs> I ran out of drink. I don't drink. Take a shot. Right. All right. Waffles. Let's go. <laughs> we need a waffle drink. That'd be cool. Like, oh, I've never had a Bloody Mary before. Isn't that the drink that they put food in? Can you put waffles in that? I don't know. Well, I think it's celery. Well, I've seen like grilled cheeses <laughs> shoved in them. Like, we could have like a grilled cheese that made out of waffles. Wrong. <laughs> but like on the outside of the glass, not like in the drink, but like on the outside. And I've seen like fried chicken. Have you never seen those? <laughs> I've never had Bloody Mary, so I don't know, but I've seen pictures. I've seen pictures. I've, I've only seen the celery, and I hate celery, so. You need to uh, up your Google game then and look up some Bloody Marys. Look up some drinks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get on that. The Smithsonian actually has one of the oldest waffle irons ever. Just fun fact on that one. That dates back to the 1800s. I did not realize, actually, the electric skillet started in the 1900s. The electric waffle iron. It was not safe at all. <laughs> wires were exposed like easily could electrocute yourself so you can have waffles but you also might die (laughs) are they are they worth it though are they are they so delicious back then that like people are like "Mm, it's worth it i'll get electrocuted maybe because like things are so processed now (laughs) (laughs) that's true (sighs) of course technology improved and we got now more safer. Now, this is just only a decade later they came out with electronic waffle irons that were pretty. Now, when I think of waffle iron now, I think it looks like almost like a George Foreman grill. Like, they don't look cute at all. They just make what I want. Um, <laughs> I but was thinking I, more of, like, the BB-8 or the Millennial Falcon ones, you know, that oh, I Oh, those are cool. Yeah. I, I grant you those. <laughs> but these were, like, China sets. They had, like, porcelain little flowery pitchers and dishes and stuff to go with your waffle iron because they would make it at the breakfast table. So they're like, well, here's all these breakfast dishes to go with your waffle iron for your lovely wife that that probably just stays home <laughs> and makes babies. <laughs> ah, I mean, I was about to say, well, that sounds lovely until the last part. Oh. Because yeah. it's, well, I'm thinking back then, that was... Sebastication. I say, I don't judge anyone that just stays home and... Or whatever. I mean, I would vote for that, but... <laughs> I mean, my dream is to be a stay-at-home dog mom, so... Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. I have no tiny humans. <laughs> I don't like tiny humans that much. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a huge fan. Another general fact, though, is whenever... Way, way, way back when, 
the waffle was a peasant dish. And if you were fancy, you could add sugar and seasoning. They also did orange blossom water. Huh. That was kind of interesting. I never thought oranges on waffles. Would that be like on it like we do syrup or the water? or? I think so. I think they dip it in kind of like a hot water. I might pass on that. Yeah, I'm not a fan. But I'm on board for all the rest. <laughs> Anyways, so that is the history of waffles, though. I mean, after we got the pretty waffle irons, we pretty much know what they are now, which is Millennium Falcon. We have established that. <laughs> I love thinkgeek.com so much. Sponsor us! But yeah, like I, have, <laughs> I have like everything from there, but I every time I'm like, oh, wait, okay, we should get a Star Wars waffle iron. They're out. So it's going to happen one of these days. You can't really justify it. I mean, we already have one, but I mean, I have my cool R2-D2 measuring set you gave me. So I'm like, it'll match. <laughs> it's, it's always like the first thing you see when you come in my kitchen, my little R2-D2. I love so that. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And uh, so I actually have one more breakfast story. Like you're going to think breakfast, of this. <laughs> breakfast is obvious. Well, it's the most important meal of the day. It is. I enjoy breakfast. But yeah, I realized that half of these stories are breakfast. But you know what? <laughs> I don't care. Waffles make great desserts, too. I only eat a waffle with ice cream on it for dessert. So. Oh, man. Yeah, that sounds good, too. I got. I finally, now that I can have gluten, I got to try that Kodiak cake. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're, like, full of protein or whatever. So I was eating the chocolate ones with, like, whipped cream and fruit. Oh, so good. <laughs> All right, so I had fun. Well, I had all these. Okay, funny as fuck. I'm going to talk about the man whose passion for digestion transformed breakfast. Are you intrigued? Uh, Very. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're rolling hard on the breakfast. I mean, like, I like breakfast, so yes. <laughs> all right, so in the 1890s, people flocked to Battle Creek Sanitarium. English, Kena. God damn it. I told you, okay. words are hard. <laughs> words, words are hard. And, okay. So, in 1890, people started to flock to the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan. They came to partake in the wisdom... <coughs> bullshit. <laughs> being, dispensed, <laughs> being dispensed by America's newest health guru. He was a medical doctor down on the American diet. He called modern cooking the greatest bane of civilization. You should see what we eat today. <laughs> In like 1890, there was no McDonald's or I don't know what he's complaining about. Today, we're just gluttons. There's roly polies. <laughs> we're like in Wally at the end. They're all drinking soda and can't get up. They have- I, was, well, I was joking that we need a, a temporary handicap where like a worker from the restaurant will valet bring us our car. Like, especially if you're at a buffet or something, you're so full. <laughs> Like, can you just give them your keys and they bring it up? Just roll me out. <laughs> roll you out the door. Oh, man. All right. So, this doctor was actually very charismatic, and he was also an author, so people were kind of, like, drawn to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told his audiences that the key to human happiness lie in their digestive tract. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. It's like CSI going on right now. <laughs> Oh, it gets better. Indigestion, he wrote, is responsible for more deaths than any other causes combined. I <laughs> I mean, I don't think he really, I need him to cite those sources because I can think of some other things that kill more people than indigestion. 
Uh, <laughs> your face I'm is pure confusions. <laughs> I'm a little speechless. I'm like, I'm like taking an acid. Like, <laughs> <sighs> so the sand, also known as the sanitarium, <laughs> you know, because they wanted to make it more hip. They served up a healthy, low-calorie meal, and sometimes they were a bit short on taste. Because, you know, healthy food doesn't necessarily uh, taste so great. But he was all about, like, being very bland and stuff. Yeah, where's the salt? Yeah. So the doctor worried about what would happen to patients when they actually returned home. Like, they would immediately drop their eating habits because, you know, sugar and taste. Mm -hmm. So he began experimenting in the kitchen to develop a low-calorie, ready-to-eat breakfast food that he could sell by mail order. With the help of his wife and brother, he came up with a brand new health food that would one day adorn breakfast tables across the nation. That food is toasted cornflakes, and the doctor is John Harvey Kellogg. Da-da-da! Wow. Well, I didn't expect me to really know who you're talking about. Like, very famous name. And brand and everything. Jesus. But wait, there's more. Of course, there always is. (laughs) The good doctor was uncomfortable about sex, and he (laughs) he thought it was detrimental to the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of a human. He personally abstained from it, and he never consummated his marriage. He actually spent his honeymoon working on his anti-sex book. (laughs) That poor lady. Oh, and they, like, lived to, like, 90, too. That's a long time. How did someone be married to that? I mean, okay. Did they have, like, an open relationship? Like, I don't think so. No, he just convinced everybody that sex was bad. But wait, there's more. Of course. Tell me more. Tell me more. He said sex with your wife is bad, but masturbation is even worse. Of course. That's what killed the dinosaurs. I mean, there's no proof that it didn't. So, if illicit commerce of the sexist is a heinous sin, Kellogg wrote, self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. Oh, I, like, I like that phrase, self-pollution. Like, <laughs> we should start using that more. <laughs> Put that on some merch. <laughs> or if there was like a, a brand of sex toys and they'd be like polluted, like self-pollute. <laughs> Polluted today. I polluted. Oh, God. <laughs> That's disgusting. That's terrible. We're going downhill fast. I apologize. Take a shot, everybody. Take a shot. <laughs> Even Sorry. if you're at work. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> so, in plain facts for old and young, embracing the natural history of hygiene and organic life, written by Kellogg, he cataloged 39 different symptoms of a person self-polluting, including... General infirmity, I don't know what that means, defective <laughs> development, mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, boldness, bad posture, stiff joints, fondness for spicy foods, palpitations, and epilepsy. Wait, I don't understand <laughs> the bashfulness and the boldness. Like, there's just so contradicting extremes. Exactly. I, I mean, oh, I missed acne. Acne's on here, too. My bad. It was hot damn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in it until you said that. Now, oh, shit, I'm out. <laughs> well, it's funny because they actually say now that masturbation is actually good for mental health and it's a pain reliever. So science has disproven him. Sorry, Kellogg. 
<sighs> so Kellogg's solution to all the suffering was a healthy diet. He thought that meat and certain flavors in seasons increased your sexual desire and that plainer food, especially cereals and nuts, would curb it. <sighs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> The suspense. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, so early in his tenure at the sanitarium, Kellogg created a health treat for his patients that consisted of oatmeal and cornmeal, baked into biscuits, and then ground into tiny pieces. He called it granula. <laughs> it was probably the worst time for him to do this since a very similar product with the exact same name was being made and sold by James Caleb Jackson. So he changed the name to granola. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Uh, another of Kellogg's dietary innovations. Oh God, this one's so bad. Okay, another <laughs> one of worse. <laughs> Jesus. But wait, there's more. Okay. <laughs> Kellogg. I need. Not- I need there to not be more, Keena. I need there to not be more. It's so bad. <laughs> oh, buckle up, because another one of Kellogg's dietary innovations developed to ensure clean intestines was an enema machine that ran water through the bowel and then followed it with a pint of yogurt half delivered through the mouth and half delivered through the anus no what's the point of yogurt you're supposed to eat it oh oh man apparently this one didn't catch on and i can't imagine why i feel like that's sexual shoving yogurt up your bum for someone who did not like sex stuff, I feel like that's pretty sexual. <laughs> yeah. Well, after that, he developed the cornflakes, and that one actually caught on. So, so yeah. Corn, are cornflakes supposed to go up your bum? Like, no, just the yogurt enema. Like, <laughs> <laughs> are there more crazy theories to this mess? There's apparently a really good documentary on this. My mom was telling me about it, and she said that him and his brother created the whole Kellogg thing. But his brother was like. Come on, dude, we need to, like, add some sugar and make it actually taste good. So they kind of fought on that. But his brother was probably like, you need to, you need to stop. <laughs> like, we can't tell people to shove yogurt up their ass. It's not, not going to work for our business plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not going to really fly that, that far. <sighs> but wait, there's more. Oh, great. Yeah, I was, I was, I was now worried that there wasn't. <laughs> All right. So my last thing here. So while cereals and yogurt enemas might keep most people in line. He actually supported more extreme measures. So wait, things yogurt, that wait, 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 wait. Yogurt up the bum was not an extreme measure. No, no, it gets worse. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Just you know, I mean kind of stuff that like today you would lose your medical license over. So <laughs> it'd be sued a lot. So he said with people with particularly nasty masturbation habits, and that's a quote. For boys, he suggested threading silver wire through the foreskin to prevent nope. erections and cause irritation. For oh. girls, he advocated and sometimes employed an application of carbolic acid to the clitoris to burn it and discourage touching. Ow. Uh. <laughs> like, that was like worse than listening to Chainsaw Massacre right now. Like that's... I know, it took a turn. I went from breakfast to mutilation. So it, uh, it escalated. It escalated very quickly. Just eat cereal, okay? Just eat cereal. <laughs> but there's no more, so we're good. It doesn't okay. get worse. Well, that's pretty bad, though. Like, yeah, it's it's not not the good, not the good. So I brought us down. I should probably bring us back up, huh? Do you want spooky, random, weird, or morbid? Uh, weird. Let's do, let's do weird. Okay. 
I'm excited about this one. <laughs> okay, I'm excited about all of them, but <laughs> this one I'm particularly excited about. So, it's weird because this is actually really interesting and you wouldn't think about it. So, this is the surprisingly fascinating history of the onion. Ooh, I like onions. That's actually one of my favorite veggies. It actually has such a fascinating history. That's why I thought it was weird. Because nobody would imagine that an onion would be so priceless and important to history. So, here we go. So, there's actually some conflicting views regarding the location of the first onion cultivation. But they all took place around 5,500 years ago. So, this is the domestication of the onion. Okay. Really long-ass time ago. Yep. So historians, anthropologists, and scientists have based their predictions based on ancient remnants of food cultivation that have survived the tests of time. (laughs) Onions were grown in ancient Egypt 5,500 years ago, and they're referenced in some of the oldest Vedic writings from India around 5,000 years ago. Onions also grew in Chinese gardens as early as 5,000 years ago, and they grew in Sumeria around 4,500 years ago, in one Sumerian text dated to about 2500 BCE, tells of someone plowing over the city governor's onion patch. So it shows that they were there too. Hmm. I'm also going to use BCE uh, before Common Era because that's the current way of talking about history okay. instead of BC. Okay. If anybody didn't know that. So before it used to be like before Christ, but now it's before Common Era. So okay. just one of those little uh, politically correct things, I think. <laughs> Is that the right word? <laughs> I don't know. Pluto is still a planet, for all I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so there are actually people that believe that organized cultivation started much earlier, even thousands of years before writing and sophisticated tools were ever created. And since onions grew wild in various regions and likely domesticated simultaneously all over the world, so that's also really big for one vegetable to be happening at the same time across (laughs) the entire planet. My wild hand gestures, nobody can see. Okay. Really excited about onions. Okay. So regardless of who first did it, ancient civilizations that grew onions soon became really dependent on the vegetable, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Onions are really easy to grow. They can grow in any kind of soil, any kind of weather, and they're extremely easy to store, drive, drive. Onions don't drive. Drive. Or do they? <laughs> da, da, da. Okay. <laughs> And preserves there's more. <laughs> and there's more. Okay. <laughs> Onions yeah. can drive. You heard it here first. So, and they're also easy. <laughs> Please don't stop listening. <laughs> okay. So, and you can also preserve them during the winter. Yeah. Onions were very useful to Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindu, and ancient Chinese civilizations who had to provide a large amount of food because these civilizations were enormous. So not only are they easy to cultivate, onions prevented thirst, they're a great source of energy, and they have very useful medicinal properties. It can be easily dried and preserved for times when no other perishable sources of food were available. So, many, many, many uses. With its rising popularity, the onion became more and more present in written records, with the first millennia BC to the early centuries of AD being some of the earliest accounts. So, like... A whole century before Jesus, if that puts it in perspective. Okay. Okay. Onions were the first Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far. I'm just kidding. But it would really be funny, like, you know how they have that toast with, like, Mary or Lincoln? <laughs> okay, imagine, like, a little onion with, like, his little beard and stuff. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Where was I? Sorry. 
Speaking of Jesus, it was described several times by the Israelites in the Bible. For example, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 5, the children of Israel limit on their meager dessert diet enforced by the Exodus. They said, we remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. So proof that they ate it. In India, as early as the 6th century BCE, the famous medical treatise Charaka Sanhita celebrates the onion as medicine. It was viewed as one of the most important remedies for various heart, joint, and digestive illnesses. And it was also believed to be a good diuretic and great for your eyes. Like a carrot. (laughs) Sorry, I just imagine someone eating so many carrots while they turn orange. (laughs) <laughs> it just popped in my head. Oh, likewise, Dioscorides, a Greek physician in 1st century AD, noted several medicinal uses of the onion. The Greek used onions to fortify athletes for the Olympic Games. Oh, that's cool. So before competition, athletes would consume pounds of onions, drink onion juice, and then rub the onions all over their bodies. Okay. Onions? <laughs> Are my favorite vegetable. I mean, because they go with pretty much everything you eat, and they are delicious when fried. Mm, um, yes. And like on burgers, and I know that they go with fish, and just they just go with everything. But pounds <laughs> sounds a little excessive. Yeah, uh, rubbing onion all juice. over your body. You know, I if it was just one of those things, <laughs> I I'm like, okay, you do that. But onion juice. Onion bath, rubbing them all over you. Um, I mean, are they supposed to be good for your skin? I don't know, but it's probably why they win. Nobody's going to go around you if you're sweaty and covered in onion. Okay, not only are you eating and drinking, and then it's rubbed on you. But imagine when you're, because when you sweat, imagine they're sweating and just onion (laughs) fog is just coming out like this great onion mist. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably why they were so good. Did they compete against other countries at the point? I probably should have looked that up. I mean, if they're all doing it, then it's not going to scare people away. But if you had, like, somebody else competing and they weren't doing the onion thing, they'd probably, like, oh, dear God, and run away. Like, don't go around that corner. That that corner's just, like, snow. This is onion B.O. super hard over there. (laughs) Uh, So they were also used by soldiers who believe onions gave them the strength of the gods. And they also used it as juice and rubbing oil so i mean as a soldier they probably are just like scaring people off pushing them yeah. back it's like i just can't smell you anymore are we trying to like death by smell and there's some rankness going on okay that's hard rank yeah oh man all right so moving on to the romans okay they also consumed large quantities of the onion and they took it with them everywhere they went, from Italy to Spain to the Balkans and the majority of Central Europe and England. Excavations from the destroyed city of Pompeii, which was the one that was destroyed by the lava from Mount Vesuvius, if you did not know. Um, did it re- oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's the one that, like, the lava, it killed everybody, but it completely preserved all the bodies. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I gotcha. Thank you. So... They're all, like, exactly where they were the moment they died. It's really, it's, like, historically interesting, but absolutely tragic. Because there's, like, mothers clutching their children, and it's just, it's a lot. It's very sad, but. But it's also fascinating with the process of that, just because Mm 
they're still there and everything. It, yeah. It's all around terrible and fascinating and everything. Yeah, but so it's perfectly like we could... preserved a Roman town. It's the first time where everything was completely the way it was. It's like kind of like a snapshot of a moment in time. Everything was preserved. So like their artwork, all their sculptures, everything was perfectly preserved. So we learned, and even their garden was perfectly preserved. So we learned a lot about Roman culture just because of that. And speaking of that, the excavations of Pompeii showed a network of onion production that was actually described beforehand in some of the writings of Roman historians, such as Pliny the Elder. He wrote of Pompeii's onions and cabbages before he was overcome and killed by the volcano's heat and fumes. Pliny the Elder cataloged the Romans' belief about the efficiency of the onion to cure vision, induce sleep, heal mouth sores, help dog bites. That one seems a little... Just random. <laughs> Toothaches, dysentery, and lumbago, which I had to look up. And that's just a fancy word for muscle and joint pain in your lower back, which I do have because I'm old. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this morning I was like, oh, my back pain. I'm like, I got the lumbago. That, does, that sounds like too happy of a word to be painful. A lumbago? I, I immediately thought of like winbago. Isn't that like a monster? Isn't it like a... Wait, what's it? Winbago? Is that what it is? I don't know. There is like a like a Wendago, something like that. Ah! That's an Indian. That's what I was thinking. Somebody yelling at me in their car right now. How would you not know what that is? Well, obviously, you just need to watch more Supernatural, which I have been binging a lot lately. They have Wendagos. Ah, yeah, that's what. And there's Winnebago. I was trying to say Winnebago. That's a car, right? Yes, it is. Looks like there's also Winnebagos. Oh, I swear I'm smart, guys. Now, now we need a win, a win Dago and a Winnebago, <laughs> with an ego. <laughs> oh, we tied it back into the last stories. All right, so moving on. <laughs> I am derailing. Okay. <laughs> okay, drink. Take a shot. Sip. <laughs> okay, so the last thing about Rome, the Roman gourmet. Aspicious. Ooh. Bless you. What does that word say that slower? Aspicious? Suspicious? What are you saying? I wrote it down, the Roman gourmet aspicious. I don't... I meant to say chef. Why did it say gourmet? <laughs> it's it's <laughs> both fancy. Oh, it's been a week, guys. Okay. He's credited with writing one of the first cookbooks in history, which dates to the 8th and 9th centuries A.D., and it includes many references to onions, which I thought was pretty cool. Moving on, Rome has fallen and Europe has entered into the Dark and Middle Ages, where the main source of food for the entire population was beans, cabbage, and onions. These were indeed dark times. That is the only thing you're eating. It could be worse, though. I think. It, could, it could be worse. During that time, the onion was heavily used as both food and medicinal remedies, as it was in a lot of ancient cultures. And it was also more valuable than money. Ooh. Now that I would not expect. That's pretty cool. I know, right? So interestingly, onions were a food served to both poor and the wealthy. So normally, a lot of foods, you know, if you're poor, you're not going to get the same as the wealthy are. So I found that interesting. And during the Middle Ages, they found that onions were prescribed to alleviate headaches, snake bites, and hair loss. Really well-rounded for a veggie. I was like, like, that's... (laughs) That is not connected at all. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as being valuable, people often paid their rent with onion bulbs. 
I want to pay my rent with onions. Me too. I say I pay rent. I just. You have a house, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. I know. But yeah, if I could pay rent in onion bulbs, I would be definitely investing that (laughs) into the crops. (laughs) True. And they also were given as gifts, especially for weddings. I mean, I eloped, so I didn't get a lot of gifts, but I can imagine getting a basket full of onions on your wedding day and some fried zillas not enjoying that. I wouldn't mind that, especially if there were other vegetables. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I bought your groceries for the week. Hell yeah, I'll be super excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. All right, so we're going to fast forward to the 16th century, and doctors prescribed the onion as medicine for infertility in both women and animals. So... Found that interesting. Yeah. With the arrival of the Renaissance, which was approximately 14th to the 17th centuries, a new trade routes emerged as a result of the golden age of sailing. Onions were carried to all four corners of the world, enabling European colonists and native people from newfound continents to grow this incredible vegetable on countless soil types. It is believed that the pilgrims brought the onions with them on the Mayflower. That makes sense, because they last a long time, so I imagine for ships, that would be really good. Yeah, and according to diaries of the colonists, bulb onions were planted as soon as the Pilgrim Fathers could clear the land in 1648. A little fun fact about the Pilgrims and the Mayflower that's not related. They actually (laughs) landed at Plymouth Rock because they ran out of beer, and they had to set up the distilleries to make more beer. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why they landed so fast. Like, they were heading to, like... I don't know if this is a real beer. Like, when you do a beer run. <laughs> it's true. It is. And it, it's because they thought water would kill you. Because they thought water, you know, had diseases. Because they were drinking dirty, nasty-ass water. Because, yeah, it did kill you where they were at. <laughs> yeah, so they just drank beer. And they ran out. And they're like, all right, guys, we're not going to make it to where we're going. we got to stop. So, there's a little historical tidbit for you there. Also, let's not forget that there were strains of wild onions. And, you know. Yeah. America, so it's not like the natives here were like, oh, an onion. They had their own, and they were already using wild onions in a variety of ways, including eating them raw or cooked. They were used as a seasoning or as just a vegetable, and then onions were also used in syrups, as poultices, and ingredients in dyes, and even as toys. So the Europeans come over here being like, hey, look, we got this food, and the Indians are like, bitch, we've been using this forever, and we do more <laughs> with it. So... Let's just not forget. <laughs> like, we, we are well aware. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, oh, you're just eating it? That's cute. We're using it for, like, clothes or toys. Excuse you. <laughs> oh, all right. So because of all those benefits of the onion, it's not strange to see that it quickly entered the religious realm and it found its way into ceremonies of several ancient civilization. This is most apparent in Egypt, where onions were a symbol of eternity, endless life, and were part of burial ceremonies, especially during the funerals of pharaohs. The Egyptians saw eternal life in the anatomy of the onion because of the circles within a circle structure. Egyptians painted onions on the wall of their structures, pyramids, tombs, and they were present in both ordinary meals, celebratory feasts, and offerings to their gods. I didn't know about painting them on the tombs. That's really interesting. Yeah, and allegedly the workers that built the Egyptian pyramids were fed in radishes and onions. I mean, that's a lot of work for an onion, but all right. More power to them, you know. <laughs> and also with the paintings of the onions, they appear in the inner walls of pyramids and tombs from both the Old Kingdom and the New Kingdom. So that's also very interesting. The onion is mentioned as a funeral offering and is often depicted 
On banquet tables of great feasts, both large peeled onions and slender immature ones, they were shown on the altars of the gods. So they had no onion discrimination. They just could eat anything. All right. So onions were also an important part of the famous Egyptian mummification process. This is where it gets really cool. Okay. Frequently, Egyptian priests are pictured holding onions in their hand and covering the altar with a bundle of their leaves and roots. In mummies, onions have been frequently found in the pelvic regions of the body, in the thorax, flattened against the ears, or in front of their collapsed eyes. Is there a purpose for that? Or are they just... Okay, okay. (laughs) Sorry. I jumped ahead. I'm just too curious. Okay. Okay, flowering onions have been found in the chest, and onions have been found attached to the soles of the feet and among the legs. King Ramsay IV, who died in 1160 BCE, was entombed with onions in his eye sockets. Okay. All right. That sounds really creepy. Not going to lie. One way to do it. All right. So, (laughs) Egyptologists theorized that the onions may have been used because it was believed that their strong scent and magical powers would prompt the dead to breathe again. Other Egyptologists believe it's because onions were known for their strong antiseptic qualities which they construed as magical and would be handy in the afterlife. I like that it would be handy. Handy in the afterlife. <laughs> Just in case you need it. Here's an onion. There you go. So I'm sure there's probably more if I would have really dug into some like scholarly articles, which I didn't have time for, about like what each placement of the onion was, if it had a meaning. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I don't think they really know. It's all based on theories at this point. But That is true. But because they were so important, you would... Like, if they were so magical and medicinal and so important in the ceremonies, it would make sense that they ended up in the pharaoh's tombs. Because pharaoh got all the good shit in his funeral. I know. All the good shit. Mm-hmm. Like, gold and everything. I just think, like, especially in the pelvis area, it'd be there for fertility. Like, kind of like that. Or, or on the eyes. Maybe, like, godly sight or something. Yeah. I mean, in the afterlife, they thought they were going to be living anyway as gods. So, they're probably yeah. like... You need some magical dick onions to help you in the afterlife. And, and eyes. Yeah, some <laughs> crusty, flaky eyes. <laughs> All right. So today we don't use onions for worship and fertility or to pay our rent. They're still really Damn popular. What, I, need, I need onion rent. And they're used in ingredients and delicious recipes all around the world. So onions are really, really fucking interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Appreciate onions folks okay <laughs> i mean i'm not the biggest fan of like i know some people can just eat an onion like an apple i'm not I, about that life i did when i was little when i was a kid i could eat an onion like an apple i don't do that now because i want friends <laughs> <laughs> oh, i really enjoy them like grilled i got some joint pain if eating more onions is gonna help that out then i'm gonna eat more onions mm-hmm. I need rent. I need onion rent. I really want that to be a thing. Yes. All right. So, morbid, spooky, or random? Random. Ooh, okay. I'm really excited about this one, too. I've said that for every one of them because I'm really just excited. (laughs) All right. So, random AF. Last week, Ashley gave me the word cocoa. So, I'm going to talk about the origin... (laughs) Of the cocoa tree in ancient Mesoamerica. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, oh, wait, no, I screwed that up. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> I was going to make you guess where it was from. 
But then I just told you. Mesoamerica. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down like, where do you think chocolate originated? But I already told you. So I would I would have guessed Brazil. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes that's a good guess. Because isn't that where cocoa beans are grown in the trees or no? Yeah, they're yeah, South America. I'm really excited about this topic just because I took Mesoamerican art history, so I actually know how to pronounce a lot of this, so I'm really excited. <laughs> Well, if you wanted me to guess, I will guess Brazil, because that's what I would have guessed if I had not been told the answer. Well, I know a lot of the things I read, people were like, I bet you think it came from Belgium, which is funny, because that's where your waffle, you said you think it came from Belgium. Belgian chocolate, Belgian waffles. So, a little misdirection. Our stories have a lot of misdirection. All right, so, the Olmecs, who were 1500 to 400 BCE civilization, are believed to be the first humans to consume chocolate. Originally in the form of a drink. So they would crush the cocoa beans, mix it with water, add spices, chilies, and herbs, and then drink it. So how do historians know that they were the first ones? Cocoa beans have a thing called theobromine, a chemical compound that's present in the little pods. And it's been found in excavated Olmec pottery and at ancient burial sites that signifies that cocoa beverages were a staple in everyday life and spiritual ceremonies. I know, right? Especially the spiritual ceremonies. I mean, I get that it's a, it'd make a delicious drink, but I wouldn't expect the ceremonies. Oh, just wait. It gets I mean, good. granted, like, I, lo- I love chocolate. I mean, I wouldn't be there for ceremonies. So if you've ever seen a cocoa tree, you'd probably wonder, like, why would somebody drink this? So if you don't know what a cocoa tree looks like, I'm going to try to paint you a mental picture here. Mm-hmm. All right. So think, like, Nerf ball, right? Okay. That's, like, the outside pod. And then if you crack one open, it's got this, like, alien cocoon-looking white shit. It looks disgusting. (laughs) So if you take away that alien cocoon white shit husk, you have these other little bean things. And that's what the chocolate comes from. The white shit, is that, like, like a spider web? Or is it more like coconut-looking? Do you know? Or It kind of looks like a... I mean, kind of like a mix of two. It looks like... It just looks really disgusting, but apparently it's really sweet. And because cocoa beans are actually really bitter, so the husk is actually sweeter than the cocoa. So that was surprising as well. It just looks kind of like this white, gross stuff. So a lot of uh, historians kind of wondered why somebody would eat that, or like how did they even crack it that far? Because it's like three layers to find the chocolate. I always always wonder like how things got started in the sense like I want to eat that. Like, let's give this a try. Like, how? who would think to just pull this off the tree and just crack it open? Exactly. Well, there's two theories, like two main theories that I found that were pretty funny. So the first one is that somebody was eating the husk and was spitting the seeds into a fire. And then the rich smell of them roasting made somebody go like, there might be something to this. Because like roasted chocolate smells delicious. So that's a theory. And then the other theory I thought was hilarious was that the Olmec saw rats eating the the fruit with gluttonous vigor. And that's the quote. Gluttonous. <laughs> vigor. Gluttonous vigor. Vigor. Oh, excuse me. I need all of that. Sorry. Gluttonous <laughs> vigor. Vigor. Yeah, very enthusiastically. But that actually does make sense. Like, both of them do to me. Like, if you're observing the rats, like, losing their damn minds over this, like, fruit, you're probably like, well, it's not poisonous because they're not dying. And sure. Give, why not give it a try? Mm-hmm. I would imagine both are pretty legit, but I mean, this was also 1500 years before Jesus, so we're not going to know what they were thinking. It's all 
educated guesses at this point, but uh, regardless of how it was discovered, they began cultivating cocoa. And over time, it spread to Maya civilizations in 600 BC and the Aztecs in 480, which they got fun words that I can't wait to say. I hope we don't screw it up. I really like hyped it up. And I'm going to mess it all up. Words are hard, but fun. <laughs> so the typical preparation of cocoa involved harvesting the beans from their pods. Then you fermented the beans, roasted them, and then ground them into a paste. And then the paste was mixed with water. And then they vigorously mixed with this grooving utensil called a molinette. And the cocoa was transformed into a frothy beverage. Remember the froth, because it's going to be really important in a little bit. Okay, froth. Got it. All right, check. <laughs> Since sugar was not yet known to them, cocoa was consumed unsweetened. Not my favorite. No, Drunk but on- maybe with the spices, it'd be okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'd be different, because they put a lot of, like, hot spices, and that would be kind of... That sounds pretty good. I don't know. I'll eat chocolate in any form, honestly. So probably should try it. <laughs> try everything once, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it was drunk on occasion by most people. Coca was more of the privileged, including including priests, rulers, soldiers, and other members of the high-ranking deity. Coca was typically prepared in and drunk from a gourd, which makes sense. Yeah. So think of its significance like you pop champagne in it to celebrate today. It's like, you don't really drink champagne every day. Well, most, most normal people like us know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you're rich and like bathing in diamonds, you drink champagne every day. But plebes like us don't. <laughs> the Maya also valued cocoa so much they used it as currency. In 1545, a list of the prices was actually recorded. And here's just a couple of them. One good turkey hen equals 100 cocoa beans. One turkey egg is three cocoa beans. A fully, <laughs> a fully ripe avocado, one cocoa bean. And one large tomato is one cocoa bean. So, yeah. That sounds reasonable. Right. That, that trade. Mm-hmm. There's like a theme with vegetables and stuff being money. It was a simpler time. Uh-huh. So it was also prescribed as a remedy for ailments, kind of like the onion. So cocoa is used to cure skin conditions. The fever, seizures, and sometimes they use it to coax illnesses out of your body by appealing to the spirits with an offering of beans. So, I mean, if that worked, I'd be like, get out of me, damn demon illnesses. Here's some cocoa. I feel like I would have good intentions of that and then I'd end up eating it. <laughs> <laughs> like, do I stay sick and eat this or do I offer it to the gods? My first thought would be like, try to coax the illness out of me, and then I'd accidentally summon a demon or something, which is like my worst fear. <laughs> like, ah, oh, joke's on you. I <laughs> have struggle with shit, and then it turns out to be a demon. I know, I have an irrational fear about demons. Like, even podcasts, if they start talking about demons, I turn them off because I'm afraid it will accidentally summon one. And the other day, I left the door open. So, logically, I know that the flies came in because the dogs opened the door, and I didn't notice. But there was probably, like, 200 flies in here. My first thought was, like, oh, shit, a demon. Like, why would that be my first thought? <laughs> well, there's that movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves. There's a lot of flies in that one. Yes, that's what Zeke said. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd also just watched Sabrina and that one demon. Oh, that came yes. was the fly demon, so it was yes. probably, probably why. But I touched my crucifix. Like, I have a... I'm not Catholic, but I'm, like, obsessed with, like, Catholicism history. I find it really fascinating. So I have uh, rosaries from, like, Notre Dame, Paris, 
And then I have one from Shards Cathedral, but I like touched it to make sure it wasn't possessed and I'm good. So, <laughs> so if you ever wonder how weird and irrational I am, anxiety is real, guys. <laughs> Rational fears. All right. <laughs> Back on track. <laughs> well, I wish I was kidding about all that too, like just to be funny, but I'm not. That's really what happened. <laughs> you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. That's how I feel right now. Like, I know. Safe than sorry. Just in case. Yeah. Okay, so back to the froth, which was actually not that much later. So (laughs) the beverage was generally made by women who raised the foam on the drink before consumption. The foam was thought to contain the essence of the wind god, Pei, and the amount of foam raised measured the women's worth. I mean, I'm not really happy about that part. What if you have a bad day and, like, your froth ain't that good and you're just worthless? Or just sleepy and just, you know, you don't make it that well. But wait, there's more. Of course. Yay. It was actually one of the few food crops that they used as a dowry. And it was part of wedding ceremonies. So early records of Maya marriages in Guatemala indicate that some places a woman would have to make the cocoa frothy beverage to prove that she could make it before they would marry her. So if she didn't make a good enough froth, then she wouldn't get married. I feel like I would suck at it properly. Like. <laughs> it might be exhausting, too, because you're just, like, hammering away at that thing. Like, if you had no upper body strength, like me, you might not be very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking also, like, the disappointment. Like, you're there to get married, and then they're like, oh, no, everyone go home. Like, everyone just go home. Her froth sucks. We're shutting it down. Shut it down. True. I am not about that life. All right, so we're going to dig a little deeper into the religious significance of cocoa. Okay. According to the Popovu, the Mayan creation text, the gods created humans from a combination of sweet things, maize, and cocoa. So according to the Mayas, we are part cocoa, which I eat a lot of chocolate, so it's probably true. Well, what was that phrase? Like, we're made of, girls are made out of sweet spice and everything nice? There we yeah. Go. They, ju- they, just, they just knew before us. They just knew. That's true. All right. So uh, this is where the hard words come in. (laughs) I got it. I got it. I'm going to nail this. All right. So the Popol Vuh also features the hero twins, Hunapu and Shibalong. They're usually seen as complementary forces. So think like sky, earth, day, night, sun, moon, etc. They play really heavily into the early Maya mythology. They are in constant strife with other gods. And they were eventually burned to death, and the remnants were thrown into a river, and they were transformed into catfish, and they lived happily for a long time. So, if you've never read, like, Maya creation stories, it's a wild ride. (laughs) Highly recommend it. (laughs) This is an interesting animal to choose to be a catfish. I've never heard of someone wanting to be a catfish. I know. It really, they're very interesting. Same thing with, like, Aztec creation, like... They're very, very interesting. There's one where they, like, chopped somebody's head off and then kicked them down the stairs of a Mayan temple and then, like, the blood running (laughs) down it, like, symbolizes something and that's part of their creation story. I can't remember what that is, so don't quote me, but I remember that part stuck in my head. Sorry, Dr. Morales. That sounds like some some shit from Mortal Kombat. It does! It does! I bet they get some ideas from that shit because, I mean... this intro to one of the video games is all of the characters fighting up, running up the stairs, and, like, yeah, that's Mortal Kombat shit going on. 
Let's oh man, they stole that shit from like the Aztecs. The Aztecs were brutal. Oh man. Mm-hmm. All right. But we're going to get more to that later. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So, anywho, according to the legend, cocoa cultivation was initiated by the Maya demigod Hunapu. And this significance shows that cocoa is actually cons- considered divine in origin. English is hard. <laughs> Sip. Shot. <laughs> Everyone drink. Drinking <laughs> oh, game. Okay. Many ancient artifacts depict cocoa offerings between gods such as the Mayan moon goddess Ishel and the rain god Chalk, who are seen trading cocoa in ancient Mayan depictions. All right, so the tree is also known as the world tree or the first tree, and it became kind of like a tree of life symbol and a cosmic metaphor linking the natural world and the spirit world. So offerings of cocoa function to symbolically connect diviners with the gods through ritual. The bounty of the cocoa tree in Mesoamerica also created a metaphorical link to abundance, which was requested by the gods in agrarian and funerary rites. It's very important. Sounds life-changing. Sounds important indeed. Cocoa drinks were left in tombs, and beans were often used to adorn the bodies of the dead, just like the onion. What? I mean, I wrote this, and I forgot about all the parallels. All right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's, like, new to me, too. Okay. (laughs) So they believe cocoa had the power to energize the soul and aid the transition into the supernatural world. The deep spiritual meaning of cocoa catalyzed its importance in the Olmec society. So now for some Maya bloodletting ceremonies. Oh, bloodletting. Classic (laughs) medicine. (laughs) Casual transition. Like, oh, you're you're just crossing over to the paradise and the afterlife, and then it's transitioning into bloodletting. Do it. (laughs) I just, right, I just yeah. pictured, uh, like, uh, a scene from Dexter and just, <laughs> just blood everywhere and, then like, pinpointing the splatter. Yes! Oh, yes. I like that show. Me too. Besides being used in ritual, the cocoa drink was a form of offering to the gods. They'd extract blood from their earlobes or tongue by piercing them with cactus spines, mm. the tail of a manta ray, or an obsidian knife. I don't know which one of those sounds more awful. I think, I'm going to say it's all bad, and, and also just because of where on the body they're piercing. I mean... I know. I, the manta ray just makes me think of... Oh, Jesus, I forgot his name. The uh, the crikey guy. Oh, the crikey guy. <laughs> what's his name? The crocodile hunter. Yeah, but what's his name? His son is delightful. I watch him on The Tonight Show every time he's on. Oh, shit, what's their names? Steve Irwin. Irwin. Did you almost say Harvey? No, I was gonna say Harwin. Steve Irwin. Yeah. God, I am derailing a lot today. Focus, Tina. All right. So it's four in the afternoon. You're fine. To hashtag day drinking. It's the best. All right. So once they've pierced their earlobes, the blood was then ran over the cocoa beans and mixed into the drink that was offered to the gods. And the drink was prepared, mm-hmm. how all the other ones were. And then it was beaten to produce large amounts of foam, once again. The link between blood or the heart which mm-hmm. and cocoa was not exclusive to the Mayas. The ancient Aztec societies show that cocoa was given to sacrificial victims. During the annual Aztec ritual in Tenochtitlan, a slave would be chosen to represent Quetzalcoatl, 
I knew how to say those from that class I took. Look <laughs> at <laughs> you being all smart. <laughs> it's just a fun word to say. Tnaktatalan. Quatzacodal. Okay. It's pretty percussive. It is. I love it. Okay. At the end of 40 days, during which he had to be dressed in finery and given all manner of good food and drink, he was informed of his impending death and then made to dance. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> like, made to dance. Like, as my, like how dare you? If the temple priests saw that his dancing was not as enthusiastic as they wanted, or as well as they expected, he was given a drink called Eats Pakatotl, which was a mix of cocoa, water, but they washed the obsidian blades first in the water and then made the cocoa out of it. Uh. Yeah. Okay. These sacrificial blades were crusted in blood as well. All right. The sacrifice would be rejuvenated by the drink and joyful, and then he would dance to his death. Side note, Coco is also present in Aztec mythology. The Chimalpoca Codex includes a myth similar to the creation tale in the Maya Popovu, in which the gods created man from maize, cocoa, and other plants. I mean, if two creation stories say that we're made out of cocoa, it has to be true, right? I mean, yeah, sounds right. I mean, logically. So, we're part chocolate now. Anytime somebody be like, you're not sweet, and be like, um, go read the Purple Voo. It says I am. Yeah. I just, I want one person to know what that is when you say that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. So, really quick, I just wanted to touch on the discovery and commercialization of cocoa in the 16th century, but it, I don't want to go too much into it because Columbus is an asshole. So, yeah. I mean, there's that. In 1502, Columbus got his first glimpse of the cocoa beans on a native canoe during his stop over in Nicaragua, but he did not appreciate its awesome potential value. So, like, we needed any more reason to think he was an asshole. Mm -hmm. So, and a dumbass. Not really surprised, yeah. (laughs) This true importance of this brown gold was not recognized until Hernando Cortez, who drank it with the Aztec emperor Montezuma, and brought it back to the Spanish court in 1528, along with the equipment necessary to brew it for himself. Okay, so after Cortes mounted an offensive against Tenochtitlan, the Aztec civilization fell. Also, fuck that guy. <laughs> Cortes then intensified cultivation efforts in what he called New Spain, with the intention of developing a lucrative trade deal with Europe. The Spanish court soon fell in love with the exotic elixir and adapted it to their taste, adding cane sugar, vanilla, cinnamon, and pepper, which, I mean, honestly, is more to my liking, I guess. Initially, Spain reserved cocoa for its exclusive use, carefully guarding its existence from the rest of the world, which I also thought was pretty interesting. (laughs) They were successful in keeping it a secret until a group of English pirates captured a Spanish galleon. But not recognizing its value, they burn them all. Rude. I know. Can you imagine the pirates actually trying it first? Be like, God damn, this is good. I know. Makes that with something wrong, you know? It's true. God damn pirates. God damn pirates. In 1585, the first cargo of cocoa beans arrived in the Iberian Peninsula from New Spain, launching a trade of cocoa, and thus resulting in an establishment of the first chocolate shops and it ushered in a new era of rapidly growing demand for the mysterious nectar of the new world. Oh, that's, a, that's not so fancy. I know. <laughs> I uh, 
Here you have a tree story too. I do. I thought it was really interesting when I was looking up food shit. Like I was thinking, what is the most rare and weirdest food like that I have no idea about? One of them, let's see, the tree one would be I I don't know how to pronounce these. These are just <laughs> these are just sounding them out. Jabuti Kaba. So Jabuti Kaba. <laughs> <That's so laughs> it is from Brazil. And what they are, they're like oversized grapes that grow on the trunk and branches of a tree. Oh. They are like a black purple color and they are super sweet. So they're sweeter than most fruit. And the fact they just look, they don't look natural at all. But to see something that you eat that's growing on the branch, it looks like a fungus almost, like a bubbly anime creature on a tree. Uh, that's like again like who was the first person that ate that being like this is a great idea with that one i would assume maybe like a bird or somebody like an animal of some kind and some kind of tree animal eating that and they're like what they didn't die from that let's let's taste this too that's kind of what i would assume but i'm not sure another really weird fruit is the aki it's from west africa and it's also jamaica's national fruit it is completely healthy, except it's also poisonous. What? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's nothing bad about it, like no cholesterol or anything, no issues. Except if you eat the seeds, the seeds are poisonous, which is why we actually don't have this fruit in the U.S. They are not allowed to import. Probably fear of children or just someone accidentally popping in a seed or something. But the seeds can be poisonous. Okay, well, I just Googled a picture of it, and the seed is a giant part of it, right? Is it that the black part? Probably. It's like half seeds. Mm-hmm. You would absolutely accidentally eat that. <laughs> yeah, but they eat it in West Africa and in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, it's like it's traditionally a part of a vegetable dish, and it looks kind of like a brain flower. Yeah, and then I also looked up the other tree, and it does look like a fungus. It looks like alien eggs. Yeah, it's worth a Google. another really weird fruit is the african horned cucumber (laughs) it is actually one of the oldest fruits it's three thousand years old it looks like a blowfish and some people call it blowfish fruit it's got like the orange and yellow colors and it's super spiky hence the horned in the title and it tastes between a cucumber and a lemon so like a really citrusy cucumber I like this one because it helps with, like, heartburn and, like, kidney issues and actually to lower your blood pressure to keep it regulated. I need all those things. (laughs) I was like, man, that's, like, a good, solid veggie fruit going on right there. Those are all things that are associated with my lupus. I will take 20, please. (laughs) Another one that I don't know much about, I just happened to see it right before we started recording, is red bananas. I did not know red bananas existed. And they're supposed to taste kind of like a mango. Ooh. I mean, I used to think I was well-versed in vegetables until, like, fruits until I moved to Texas. And, like, the grocery store has, like, a whole section of fruits and vegetables. I have no idea what the fuck any of them are. I need to, like, learn. But they're very cool and spiky and scary looking. But, I mean, if it's not H-E-B, it's got to be edible. So, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. That's close enough. Sure. Well, yeah, if it's not Aki, like, not that one that's poisonous, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, if that thing's the seed, it looks like half of it is seeds. Yeah. Aww. 
I would totally accidentally eat it. It looks like a grape. Be like, this will be fine. I'm going to be fine. And then kill over. <laughs> the end uh, of Kina. <laughs> that would be the way to go. <laughs> Just <laughs> an oon seed of, of fruit. <laughs> she went the way she lived her life eating. <laughs> Gluten free. <laughs> Um, two more. One is Salak. I recommend Googling this one because it is it looks weird as shit. It's <laughs> it has like a snake skin. Ew, no. And it it's just kind of like almost a pear shape, you know, um, or coconut shape, that sort of oval. And if it was laying on the ground or something, you would think it was either a bald up armadillo or a snake. It looks it disgusting. does. It looks like the dragon eggs from Game of Thrones. Yes, there we go. But would you want to eat that? No. I don't know. No, probably not. Last is breadfruit. <laughs> you can actually eat this in several stages. If it's really ripe, then it's sweet and kind of creamy. If it's under, then it's actually flaky, like it's a flaky bread. Oh. The thing about this one, like, I think it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be flaky, it has a long stem. Again, it's kind of got that egg shape kind of look, and it has a stem on it. And I saw one that's cut in half. It looked, maybe think of a toilet brush. I'm like, that is not <laughs> something I want to associate <laughs> with it. I need to try more exotic foods. I need to be a little bit more adventurous in my life. Well, I don't know if any of these are accessible. Most of them grow, like I said, in Brazil or Africa, like very tropical, hot areas. Like, I don't even know if they would. They ship them here. We, we do know Aki does not. <laughs> Sorry, folks. You cannot have access. You're going to have to go there to get that one to risk your life. <laughs> All right. So, a few more. We have spooky and morbid. Uh, let's do spooky. Woo! Okay. I'm really excited about this one. Oh, my God. I've said that in every one of them, but <laughs> I'm excited. Let's just say I'm just generally an excitable person. I get easily excited, so that's fine. I'm just happy about everything. <laughs> Like, okay, so most of my life has been me trying to geek out about history and nobody listening to me. So the fact that people are listening to me now is very exciting. So it's a a lot. Just sharing is caring. I know. I'm like short circuiting from just excitement. All right. (laughs) So I'm going to do the haunted restaurant famous for its beef wellington. So it's kind of like food adjacent. They serve food, but it's kind of hard to find like a haunted fruit or, you know, like I tried. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking like what would pop up on that Google search <laughs> uh, you know my search history is so fucked right now just from everything I Google <laughs> I am definitely on probably a no fly list at this point especially like our morbid stories <laughs> or at least some like red flags like, <laughs> like some extra security on you <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm really excited about this one because it has everything in it. So let's go. All right. So one, if by land, two, if by sea is an elegant restaurant located on 17th Barrow Street in the heart of New York City in the West Village. It's recognized for its classic menu, beautiful decor, and it's also cited as the most romantic restaurant in New York. And it has the most engagements than any other restaurant in the area. But... (laughs) <laughs> behind it's like beautiful you know veneer it lurks a dark past dun, dun, dun. prostitution 
mysterious disappearances and gruesome deaths are among some of the nasty things that happen there. So there's a total of 20 ghosts that are believed to haunt the bistro. And some of these spirits are less than friendly towards the diners and the staff. <laughs> One maitre d' resigned, saying that after being shoved up and down the stairs every night by an invisible hand, he was just done. <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck that shit. Tired of me shoved down the stairs. This, I don't get paid enough. I'm sure that's what happened. <laughs> I mean, I had a lot of ghost experiences at Layman, but none of them ever touched me. I think I've been like, fuck this. <laughs> Well, yeah, and you're like, I'm trying to work here. Like, come on, man, help me. I help somebody out. (laughs) Like the library ghosts, we'd just be like, you're scaring the kids, and then it would all stop. Like, the lights would be turned off and doors would be slamming, and as soon as you said, leave it alone, the kids are scared, it would stop. But It's kind of like a polite ghost, like, oh, I'm sorry, and then it would just go away for a little while. That one sounds like a shithead. Like, (laughs) It does. It does. All right, so this is my, like, really corny joke I made. So if you want your meal with a side of poltergeist, <laughs> but um, don't uh, go to this restaurant. <laughs> That's so bad. That's so bad. <laughs> I know. I but know. I did. Maybe just slight shame on you. Just a slight shame. <laughs> I wrote that sober too, so that's even worse. All right. You did not have to admit that. <laughs> I thought it would be funnier once I got a little tipsy, but it wasn't. But. Well, hopefully our our listeners are tipsy. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I have a I have an acquired humor. <laughs> Just, I'll grow on you like a fungus. Okay. <laughs> In 1767, the restaurant was originally built as a carriage house. The building was purchased by then New York State Attorney General Aaron Burr in 1794. Mm. He was not throwing away his shot. <laughs> Shut. Okay, sorry. You get it. Amazon. I do. I like. Okay. I like that musical. It's cool. <laughs> All right. So, just like our country, it was young, scrappy, and hungry, and not throwing away a shot. I get it. It's <laughs> the wrong guy, but I just wanted an excuse to say the Hamilton lyrics. So, Aaron Burr kept his horses there and also took residency with his daughter Theodosia. Burr's wife, Theodosia Bartow Prevost, had previously died due to a long-standing health problem, and she left him widowed, raising their child alone. So, that's kind of sad. It's a little sad. Theodosia became the light of his life, and he considered her and her well-being the utmost priority in his life, and he spent most of his time with her. However, terrible rumors began to spread around the city regarding the intimacy of their relationship. In fact, many claim that the famous duel between Burr and Alexander Hamilton started because of this gossip. So, both men had been defaming each other's characters for a long time, and uh, the comments questioning his closeness with his daughter seemed to be the most infuriating to Burr. So, on July 11th, 1804, him and Hamilton arranged to meet outside Weehawken, New Jersey, to engage in a shoot-off, because that's what you do, right? Yeah, that's how you you solve problems. (laughs) Sounds, Sounds great. Yeah, it didn't work out well for him because the historic Burr-Hamilton duel resulted in Hamilton's death and uh, the end of Burr's political career. So, following the complete destruction of his political career and the impending exile to Europe, Burr was forced to sell all his property. And this carriage house, coincidentally, was sold to Mr. John Jacob Astor in 1804. 
So a little historical detour here. John Jacob Astor was a German-American businessman, merchant, and real estate mogul. Most of his fortune was from the fur trade, but also for investing in the real estate in or around New York City. He actually collected most of Burr's property. He was the first prominent member of the Astor family, and he was the first multimillionaire in the United States. Hmm. And his great-great-grandson, John Jacob Astor IV, was the one that died on the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. That's sad. I know. He was also played by Victor Newman from Young and the Restless, so if any of you had grandmas that forced you to watch Young and the Restless as kids, then you might recognize that. I probably would, actually. (laughs) That's all I could see. I was watching Titanic. I'm like, oh, man, that's Victor Newman. All right. Over the centuries, the building evolved to take on several different identities, first becoming a dormitory for firemen working at an adjacent firehouse. Once the area began transforming from a slum to an up-and-coming neighborhood, the city sold the carriage house in the late 1890s. But the new owner decided that it'd be a great idea to turn it into a brothel slash saloon. So it became a house of ill repute. I really like that word. Ill repute. (laughs) Instead of being like a a hooker house, it's just house of ill repute. Very fancy. It's a very polite way. Very posh. It is. Its discreet location made it the perfect place for nocturnal New Yorkers to engage in some inebriated mischief, which was a quote I stole. I thought it was funny. (laughs) That should be like my motto, inebriated mischief. I'd want that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Hell yeah! Merch. Look out. Come soon. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Alright, so the building itself had secretive features, including a hidden stone-lined passageway that ran from the shore of the Hudson River to the carriage house, which I found really interesting. Some believe that it was used to sneak in illegal goods or Revolutionary War soldiers, and it is most certainly believed to serve as part of the Underground Railroad. And then in 1910, the property became a silent movie house, which also pretty cool. So as the 20th century progressed, 17th Barrow Street became a bar, a restaurant, a bar again, and then another restaurant. And then in 1970, it was purchased by its current owners. In 1973, it opened as a restaurant and earned its current title, which stems from the quote found in Henry W. Longfellow's famous poem, Paul Revere's Ride, one if I land, two if I see. So mm. everybody knows that. Story. I thought that sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah. But no one ever dines alone at this restaurant. Oh. Right. Because they have asshole ghosts that shove you. <laughs> so many who have sat at this romantic hideaway's candlelight tables have experienced some sort of paranormal activity. I like those restaurants. The ones that guarantee that, like, no matter what you do, you're going to experience a ghost. So, I'm about that life. All right. (laughs) Staff members and diners alike have reported strange incidences, including lights flickering, patrons being shoved. Like, patrons even, not just the staff. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) Customers are always right, bro. You just need to let them be. (laughs) Right? And then also the earrings of women sitting at the bar are just constantly disappearing. I mean, what if you're wearing really expensive earrings? That's not cool. You just make sure you don't, like, just... <laughs> don't. You heard it here. Do not wear fancy earrings when you go to this restaurant, because yep. you're going to be missing one. <laughs> All right. Pictures and paintings often vanish or fall off the restaurant's walls for no reason. So, also, 
little unsettling. Like, it's one thing if one gets knocked off the wall, because you can kind of explain that normally, but if it's just gone. I know, like, you're one... looking at the wall, and you turn around and talk to somebody, and you turn around again, and it's gone, that would be a definite what-the-fuck moment. I'd be like, yeah, like, I feel really crazy right now, or some, something just went down. <laughs> I know. That would give me pause. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right, so the ghost of Burr's daughter, Theodosia, is one of the supposed ghosts here. So in her adult life, she lived in Charleston, South Carolina, and then she would often, you know, take ships because, you know, it's a long time ago before cars to go see her dad because they had a really close relationship. And then along one of her journeys to visit her dad in New York City, her boat, the Patriot, mysteriously disappeared in the fog somewhere near Cape Hatteras. I probably butchered that, but that's fine. All right, (laughs) since, since the Cape was infested with pirates... Many believe that the Patriot had been stormed, probably by the Bloody Babes or the Carolina Bankers. Like, what kind of pirate would call themselves a Bloody Babe? That was my first thought. Not very piratey. A banker? Like, I think there's someone like, uh, like some uppity suit. <laughs> I know. I'm sure some pirate was like, no, it's called the Bankers because we're like storming ships on the banks, man. Like, well, no. well, well. Also, I thought of like. Like, they're hoarding treasure, so, like, they have as much as a bank. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I get the pirates are horrible, but, like, you know, my husband it's really likes the pirates, so. It, I like them, too. Like, yeah. it's just really fascinating. And I know they're not great, but they're very badass. <laughs> yeah, the next sentence. She was forced to walk the plank to her death. <laughs> but... <laughs> That did not stop her from going to her father's residence, and uh, like she promised, and she's never left. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> but others, including Aaron Burr, actually insist the ship vanishing had nothing to do with pirates, and they think that it just sunk due to a severe storm. Regardless, Theodosia's 1813 disappearance went unexplained, and uh, her dad kind of spiraled after that. He never did really recover from the loss of her. He said that it was like being severed from the human race. So that's really sad. So not only did he kill Alexander Hamilton, which just completely fucked his political career, he'd already lost his wife. And then now he just lost his daughter, who was the only thing that meant to him. So that really sucks. That is really rough. Like that's, that's pretty shitty. Burr actually passed away on Staten Island in a boarding house in 1836. And uh, so I guess in that way, he was reunited with his daughter. Aww. Nice. And the both of them are actually spotted at this restaurant all the time in the restaurant's mezzanine. The ghosts of Burr and Theodosa both like to make their presence known. Burr's ghost is said to throw and break plates. Now you're just rude. You're just known. I know. <laughs> right, Theodosia, Theodosia is rumored to be the ghost that swipes earrings from unsuspected female diners. Ghosts have actually seen her walking up and down the restaurant stairs. I mean, I guess maybe you'd get bored after so many, you know, centuries or whatever. I don't know. But why earrings? Why just one? I mean, I guess it could be, like, practical joke. Well, I mean, what's going to piss you off more? I mean, it's one thing (laughs) you lose both. (laughs) I know. I think, yeah, I would be more upset with just one gone. But I don't really wear earrings that much, so I guess I don't have to worry about it. I don't even have pierced ears, so I'm just like... <laughs> like, I don't own jewelry. I mean, I have my wedding slash engagement ring, but that's the only thing I wear. 
And I don't wear makeup like 90% of the time. And yeah, yeah, whatever. To each their own. Curling is hard. Peopling is hard. Peopling is hard. It's true. So Burr and his daughter aren't the only ones inhabiting this 200-year-old building. A woman dressed entirely in black often descends the staircase before disappearing into thin air. A paranormal investigator confirmed that this was the apparition of a woman who had tripped over her dress and fallen to her death, breaking her neck. Yikes. (laughs) Speaking of girling. (laughs) There's just like, there's your uh, why you should never wear dresses. I also found that one of the ghosts is supposedly a Flo Ziegfeld Follies girl, and she haunts the restaurant's constitution room. So if you don't know, Siegfried girls were the chorus girls from the Broadway review spectacular known as the Siegfried Follies. If that makes sense. So one of the yes. early Broadway shows. I'm thinking very can-canny. I don't know. I can't back that up, but that's what I envision. And that's what I'm picturing as well. <laughs> All right, and then there's also a blacksmith who haunts the stairway of the upper story of the building where he lived and was seen by a retired staff member many, many years ago. Staff claims to have seen everything from plates moving on their own, footsteps in the empty upper floor, and chairs being pulled from beneath seats of patrons. (laughs) Can you imagine you're sitting there and somebody just pulls the seat out from underneath you? Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Well, that just yeah. makes me think, like, that, that, that's an old joke. Like, that's... <laughs> I mean, you're, I mean, I, this is one of, like, a four-star AAA restaurant. You're paying a shit ton of money, and somebody's just throwing you on the floor, and probably you're going to, like, throw your food on the floor. Do they replace that food, I wonder? Because I would probably. Um, at the bottom of the menu is, like, a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> if a ghost, like, pulls your chair out from underneath you and you drop your food, there's no refunds. It's all on you, man. You just hang on tight. Eat fast and hang on tight. Like, this is supposedly the number one place to get engaged. So do you think, like, the ghost fuck with the people? Like, he's about to pull off the ring and they're just like, nah, like, ninja chop it and it goes flying. I mean, if you're going to be a prankster, that's the way to do it. I would expect that. And then, like, when you said the earrings go stolen, I'm like, I expected a ring to go miss it out of the box. (laughs) Can you imagine? Just look for people, like, Looking in their coat pockets for the ring and it's just going green. Like, oh, shit. Or when people put the ring in, in food or in the drink and then they knock over the food, like, that's what I'm also picturing. And the ring just gets <laughs> scattered or it's just lost. Oh, man. That, that's the or one. Or, like, hey, this happy couple just got engaged and then you shove them down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, push. Push. I mean,. Obviously, that's what you do. I guess you'd get bored if you've been there for 200 years, but I don't know. Um, They also said there's cold spots, and there's actually a phantom gentleman that sits at the table, and then he vanishes when the server tries to take his order. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I would just get annoyed. Be like, come on, man. Don't waste my time. Could have seated people here. (sighs) All right. General Manager Roseanne Martino says that she's experienced many things. They're very inexplicable. And she said that she's been there eight years and she has seen a lot. Some of the paranormal activity she describes is pretty classic, including the picture frames that we talked about. The machinery activates by itself. There's strange drafts, especially by the bar. The flying plates, like we talked about, flickering lights. And then staff members will occasionally be pushed. When they turn around, there's nobody there. 
I don't want to be pushed, especially that one ghost broke her neck. Why is she pushing people? She wants them to break their neck too. She's lonely. That's a little, that's a little harsh. That's a little, it is. a little much. You know, just to the little prankster things. You know, that's that's one thing, but to to actually risk harm, that's a little little much. This is, this is a bitch. Just rude. Well, I did find it funny. So the manager was like, maybe the spirits are craving life, and maybe some of them are craving the beef Wellington, which is our signature dish. Like you like how she dropped that. Yeah, nice little plug there. It's like so subtle. Oh my god. Very subtle. And then another manager, Kirk Adair, described the restaurant like a forest. He said, you know there are creatures around you, but you don't necessarily see them. So maybe out of the corner of your eye you do, but for the most part, they remain hidden. So that's kind of an interesting way to look at ghosts. They're like tiny forest creatures. Yeah. Like little, little spirits. Little, but it's also like creepy. It's kind of like how I think about snakes. Like every time I'm outside, I'm like, I know there's one near. It has to be. But I don't see it, but I know it's there. Like I'm really paranoid. <laughs> I really don't like snakes. Then you find out it's just a snake fruit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this stuff actually says that they believe the ghosts aren't malicious and that they're actually pranksters. But I want to end my story with my favorite restaurant review I saw on here. From Lex28. <laughs> it's probably the ghosts of the thousands of crappy meals once if by land, two if by sea has served over the years. <laughs> Posted on October 18, 2011. <laughs> so, he says it's not the people. It's their shitty meals. So, I really like this story. It had everything. It had Hamilton, it had Titanic, it had pirates. Mm-hmm. For a restaurant. That's it's pretty... very well-rounded. It really is. I'm really proud of myself. High five, Keenan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then my last one is morbid. Yes, Yay. You ready for that? I'm ready. All right. So, I'm also really excited about this. So, humanity has, throughout history, frequently decided that no matter what horrible crime you've done... The government is going to kill you anyway, and they should at least give you a decent meal. So we're going to talk about your last meal when you're on death row. Oh, my gosh. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Yes. No, the day before. day before. Sorry. That's just, like, that's really random and really crazy. We're just talking about this. So I am in. I am somewhat prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Get out of my head, Natalie. Well, we are twins, so it's fine. It's true. Yeah, it's true. When we were at the library, we just called us twins because they couldn't tell us apart. <laughs> yes, on, on my phone, um, her she is Keena Twin. That's that's her name. <laughs> yeah, Keena you're twin. just twin in my phone. Just twin. And then sometimes I look for your name and I'm like Natalie, and I'm like, oh shit, yeah, it's twin, not Natalie. That's why. That's why you're Keena Twin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first known recording of this practice was actually in the Sumerian code of Ur Namu back in the 22nd century BCE. So a long ass time ago and Roman gladiators were treated to a large feast before they were inevitably slaughtered in the arena. And the Aztecs used to eat the people they sacrificed. Oh, that is what that says. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought it, I, I kind of hope that's not what it says, but that that's what people do. It's called cannibalism and it is frowned upon now. I know. I think when I wrote this, I thought maybe like they gave them a good meal before they sac- like sacrificed them, which I think they did, but then they also ate eat them so i mean there's that so 
The concept of the last meal is supposed to represent an acknowledgement of the inherent dignity of a person who's being executed, says Robert Dunham, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, which is a nonprofit that tracks issues related to capital punishment, which I didn't know they had their own thing. I did not either, so thank you for that. (laughs) He also says it is part of a tradition of showing some form of respect for the individual's humanity while symbolically indicating that you are about to end a person's life. Despite the symbolism, he says, it's not an exercise of mercy, and it's not a favor. So he's not saying, like, they're giving them, like, some special treatment. It's just supposed to be recognized. Like, I know you're human. You're going to die, but, like, we're going to recognize your life or whatever. Yeah, it's just kind of like a humane way of killing them, in a sense. Yeah, I would imagine it's more for the people killing them, like, you're not showing them mercy. You're still going to kill them, but showing them that we're better than them by allowing them to have one last thing. That they really crave, really want. Yep. So many of us have this idea in our heads that death row inmates can get pretty much whatever they want for their last meal, which... Well, it's true, yeah. but... Um, sorry to interrupt for a second, but when we were looking it up yesterday, some states in the U.S., we have a budget for them. So some budgets are only like $15. Like you only have $15 to spend on your last meal. And I'm like, well, shit, I'm just going to go to Taco Bell and get like 13 burritos. <laughs> Everything. Yeah, and that's true. It actually varies from every single state. So inmates are allowed to request whatever they want, but it's up to the state to decide what they actually get. So they could request anything they want, but the states have the right to say, fuck off. So. For example, in Florida, the meal has to be locally purchased and can't exceed $40. In Virginia, inmates are pretty much limited to whatever is on the monthly cycle of meals for the whole prison. So most prison chefs will do their best, but they can be heavily restricted on what they're allowed to do and what they have on hand. So I decided to dig into our respective states. So I looked into Arkansas and Texas. Okay. Okay. So starting with Arkansas, which my home state. Um, I found that on February 20th of this year, 2019, a Republican member of the Arkansas House presented a bill that would put limitations on death row meals. She said the last meal of an inmate to be executed shall be prepared by the Department of Correction from existing foodstuffs at the particular facility housing the inmate and should be limited to the same food choices as the general population inmates experience at the facility that has been available to him or her on the date of the execution. So... This bill went into the House of Representatives um, saying that, like they shouldn't be able to ask for anything they want. And then I did some digging because there wasn't any follow-up on this, but I went yeah. to the Arkansas legislature website and looked up the bill. And it actually died on uh, April 24th. So did not pass. Oh. So, I don't know why it didn't pass. Apparently it died in the calendar, so it didn't even make it. Like they read it aloud at a session, but it never made it past that. It's so. like, eh, not really important, I guess. <laughs> Not really sure. So, during a series of four executions that happened in 2017, which was the last time Arkansas actually put somebody to death, there were four people, and this is what they ordered. Are you excited? I am, because I was just talking about this the other day. Like, I'm glad to kind of continue this conversation. <laughs> I'm not going to say their names, because they're all murderers, and they're pieces of shit, and I don't think, like, they deserve to have their names respected. 
said. So, yes. first person. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. That's my biggest gripe is that everybody remembers the murderers, but nobody ever remembers the victims. So, I, I just don't I know, like, the Ted Bundy, the Ted Bundy movies and the documentary. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it is interesting and fascinating, and especially, like, psychology of it. I get it. But I have—I don't even know who he killed. I, I don't know any of the victims' names, and that's sad to me. Mm-hmm. That, that isn't known. But everyone knows Ted Bundy. But they it's don't know true. People. All right, so first dude chose to have communion and set up a final meal. So that's interesting. And it actually said that that's not unusual for death row, for them to forego their last meal for communion. So, yeah. All right, so the next dude ordered three pieces of fried chicken, Fried potato wedges and ketchup, nacho chips with chili and cheese sauce, jalapenos, banana pudding, ice cream, and two Mountain Dews. <laughs> it sounds like a pretty good spread. It does, right? I was like, I mean, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next guys had three chicken breasts, potatoes, sliced cheese, beef jerky, three Butterfinger candy bars, tartar sauce, Two cups of punch and a chocolate shake with Butterfinger Crunch. What's the tartar sauce for? <laughs> I don't. For the chicken? I, I don't. So. I don't understand. I do not comprehend. All right. And the last person to be executed in Arkansas also chose communion over the final meal. So I guess there's two kinds of people. You got your, I want my communion. And then you're like, give me all the fucking food. Like glutton, yes. <laughs> Give it to me! Right. Uh, there was one killer that I was reading about. I don't even remember the name of it, but of him. He wanted a pint of mint chocolate chip ice cream, and that was it. Oh. <laughs> he just wanted some ice cream. There's an artist, a photographer, who did a whole series of taking pictures of what everybody's last meals were. And it was actually mm-hmm. pretty, really interesting. Like, one was just like a black cup of coffee... And I mean, just it's very moving because she did it like black and white. And it's really interesting. You should give it a Google because it was very interesting. So let's move on to Texas. Okay. <laughs> my new hometown that I am, my home state. I mean, I'm not born and raised Texan, but I'm trying to make them accept me because I really like it here. I know you're very bro Texas. What are you talking about now? <laughs> I don't know. I can't help it. But yeah, this was a. A gem of a story. I'm so excited. Okay, so on June 7th, 1998, 49-year-old African-American man from Texas named James Bird Jr. was brutally murdered by three men. Two of those three assailants were sentenced to the death penalty, and the third was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Of the two given the death penalty, one still is on death row, but the other one, Lawrence Russell Brewer, was executed on September 21st, 2011. And uh, he really fucked shit up because his last meal was Texas's last, last meal. (laughs) So, before Brewer, Texas allowed last meals. Some requests were pretty basic, but high-end. So the asking for things like steak and french fries. Other requests were just plain strange. Like in 2001, a murderer requested that he just get a bag of assorted Jolly Ranchers this last meal i mean to each their own and then well that one was granted and then in 2000 a man asked for justice equality and world peace and it was denied because that's pretty impossible (laughs) this one was my favorite in 1990 a murderer requested a lump of dirt 
to be used for a voodoo ritual as a way of marking his body for the afterlife. His request was denied, and he was given a cup of yogurt instead. Nice. Let's think back to my last story about yogurt and see how that... <laughs> I, I did have a flashback in my head, and it did not go well in my head. <laughs> so... I'm never going to look at yogurt the same. I hope you're aware. <laughs> my job here is done. All right. <laughs> Brewer's request, who was the last one. Per the New York Times, he asked for two chicken fried steaks with gravy with sliced onions, a triple patty bacon cheeseburger, a cheese omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers, and jalapenos, a bowl of fried okra with ketchup, one pound of barbecued meat with half a loaf of white bread, which barbecue in Texas is a big deal. That's a lot of meat. All right. Three fajitas. A meat lover's pizza, one pint of bluebell ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. The state provided him with this meal, costing hundreds of dollars and consisting of thousands of calories. Brewer claimed that he wasn't hungry and didn't eat a single bit of it. What a dick. (laughs) That is such an asshole move. Like, that is just beyond... Right? I can't even. Oh my god. I, I would be mad. I hope the guards ate it then. Like, well, fuck you then. They just start eating. I hope so. That's a lot of food. So, the next day, state legislatures asked the Department of Criminal Justice to end the tradition of last meals. One lawmaker stated, It's extremely inappropriate to give a person sentenced to death such a privilege. Is a privilege which a perpetrator did not provide their victim. Which, I mean, true. The Department of Criminal Justice chairperson agreed, and the tradition ended. Since then, last meals will consist of whatever is on the menu for all prisoners, with no special adjustments for those about to be executed. So, Texas gave them all a big fuck you, and you'll just eat whatever's on the menu. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm fine with that, too. Like, I I think it's interesting, the last meal, and I, I understand it, but... Uh, it's not necessary. I mean, they murdered people. They, mm. they really don't deserve that sort of treatment. But I understand trying to take the high road of it, too, and just be like, we acknowledge this. This is like you saying goodbye and mm. fuck off. We'll kill you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't even murder bugs. Like, I'm that person that puts them outside because I don't want to hurt anything. So I yeah. can't imagine murdering a person. But I don't know what my last meal would be. I don't, yeah, I don't eat meat. Like, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> so it's like, I really have no idea about this. <laughs> like some fried um, tofu deliciousness. Like P.F. Chang's tofu. Oh, my God, it's so good. <laughs> Man, you can get on wheat roast. I love that stuff. Anyways. Um, <laughs> there was a, I believe, Arkansas killer that ordered a, a feast, a huge meal. And the dessert was a pecan pie. And he ate everything but the pie. And when the guard asked, like, why why didn't you eat that? He says, I'm saving it for later. Huh. But uh, he was, like, dying the next day. <laughs> so he's like, I'm just going to save it for later. So classic Southerner move, I feel like. I'll, see it. I'll save that for later. <laughs> also very Southern to have a pecan pie. Yeah. I do have a couple of morbid tidbits. If Oh, yeah. What do you got for me for morbid? Well, it's just strange deaths. Like, someone died of not peeing 
holding it in. Did you know you could die from that? If you hold it in too no. long? No. I knew it was not healthy, it was not good, but you could just, like, uh, die from it. <laughs> so, if they were drinking all their cocoa drink and didn't pee, they would die. Yes. In 2007, there was a radio contest. It was hold your Wii for a Wii. <laughs> and what they did, they had about 20 contestants, and they were to drink as much water as possible without going to the bathroom. And a woman ended up dying from it. It was water poisoning, basically, because she had too much water in her system and her bladder just, nope. And she just died from it. It's It just seems crazy to me. Uh, truckers are also bad about that because on the road, they don't stop. The most famous person to die from that is an astronomer, actually. Tycho Bra. I don't know how to pronounce it. I, I'm not really good with foreign words, I've discovered. Uh, it's thought it was rude to get up when he was at a banquet. So he was drinking, having fun at a banquet, and then he got home and he died. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, from drinking too much. And he was an interesting person. Like, he trained an elk and had an elk as a pet. A oh. little, little tidbit for him. My hand. Um, to, people who get way too wasted also can have this issue because they get so drunk they don't realize they need to use the bathroom. And I know we always talk about people pissing on themselves. <laughs> Breaking the really? seal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to break that seal or you just might die. Well, okay. <laughs> Another super strange death uh, is by a beard. Death by beard. So be wary out there, hipsters, by your beard length. <laughs> this man, Hans Stimmiger. This was in the 1500s in the area of Austria. He had a four and a half foot beard and he tripped on it and he oh, broke his neck. No. <laughs> oh man, this is like a full circle back to Austria where the bagel and the croissant were born. Oh my gosh. Oh. This is a good, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that'd be a terrible way to go. You're really like, filling yeah. yourself with your giant beard and that kills you. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I read that he normally kept his beard up, like, in a pouch or so, like, around his chin, so it's kind of tied up and everything, but I apparently he wasn't, didn't have it all tied up, and he tripped on it. I don't know if he was bending over while, and, like, took a step, and he just ended up falling, but he broke his neck. He he died because of a beer, okay? So be aware, people, even if you're inspired by ZZ Top, you know, whichever. <laughs> Or just really cool bikers. <laughs> Either way, just be careful of the beard. I'm assuming he's pretty short, because, like, if I had a four and a half foot beard, I'd still be fine, because I'm six foot. So, yeah, yeah, I've been pretty short. Probably. They didn't say. I read a couple articles about it, but they didn't say about his height. But that was just the cause of the tripping. That's why I, that's why I think he was, like, bending over, reaching for something, and, oh. and actually, like, stepped on it. And then maybe probably hit, yeah. I mean, to everybody that made fun of me for being tall, at least I ain't going to trip on a four and a half foot beard. Like, <laughs> I can reach things on the top shelf and I'm not going to die this way. So, yep, just check that off the list. Like, check, <laughs> safe from that. Yep. Oh, man. Anyways, I just had those couple of little interesting deaths of, like, I, that I had no idea about. And I know with beards being so popular now, I'm like, watch out. <laughs> Oh, man, that's really cool. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for being my co-host today. This well, was thank really you. Fun. I really had fun. 
yeah, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the stories. I know. I'm really excited, and I need you and Ashley to both be on this podcast because I think you guys would be like, what's that saying? Thick as thieves. I think our humor would be unstoppable, all three of us together. What was that phrase earlier, that drunken mischief? Inebriated mischief. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that would be the three of us. I know. Well, Ashley will be back with us soon, and I want everybody to send her some well wishes. And you can actually find her on Instagram at AGRULO and on Twitter at librarian underscore AF if you want to send her some good, good vibes and all that. <laughs> also, please follow us on our podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Historical AF Pod. And please, please, please. Send us your stories. We want to hear about your historical experiences, your experiences at historical places, your ghost stories, or if you have any experiences with true crime, email us at historicalafpod at gmail.com so we can read those on the podcast. Finally, if you'd like to join us on Patreon for some extra content, which includes our drunk dives, bloopers, which there are so many bloopers. I can't even... (laughs) so many (laughs) and then we also have the librarians book list and the historical bucket list um that is on www.patreon.com slash historical af pod and we also have a poll up right now for next week's topic so please go vote if you're already a patreon member and we also want to do a shout out to brianne or who is our newest patreon member she is our new majestic as fuck yeah that's awesome I, uh, I know Brienne from college. She she knows very drunk Kina. Has a lot of stories. So whatever she says, don't listen. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, if you like us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us become more visible so more people can hear us. And then if you send us a screenshot, you'll be entered in a contest to win some free merch. Woo! I'm oh, working yeah. on smarch. It's it's gonna be good. We got some good stuff coming. I promise. <laughs> it's really funny. It made me cackle, so it's good. Cackling is always is healthy. It's healthy. Cackling is good. It is. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. We'll. I almost said we'll see you next time. We won't see you. We'll be here next time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Anyway, goodbye. Bye. Bye.